continuing this discourse about the three marks of existence, uh, there was a question about whether the investigation has to proceed sequentially in the particular stages that I mentioned this morning. Uh, this person finds that uh, sometimes uh, they experience a phenomenon through meditation and then uh, subsequently uh, by uh, studying about it they may uh, clarify the uh, uh, perception. Of course, uh, these things can happen in a variety of ways. They don't have to go exactly in order. Uh, in fact, the main thing I would, one of the things I would like to empower each one of you to do is to discover your own way of working with the material that's given uh, in this uh, practice. Uh, discover that which works for you. Uh, we're all uh, unique as individuals. Uh, the Buddha said that uh, he compared his disciples to uh, different streams and rivers. Each has their own characteristics. Some have a lot of silt, uh, some are clear, uh, some are running slowly and meandering, some are running quickly and tumbling and rocking. Uh, but then uh, all of the streams reach the ocean. And when they all reach the ocean, they all have a basic uh, similarity. Uh, they have, um, just as the ocean has the taste of salt, uh, once people obtain liberation, uh, they have the taste of freedom. So, in another way of looking at it, I don't know if this is true or not, I heard a saying that dysfunctional families are unique and different from each other, and uh, happy families are look more similar to other happy families. I don't know if that's true or not. But, but uh, uh, really, uh, Anything that works for you, no matter if it's even not Buddhist, if you can find something that helps you to get a toehold on the practice, then follow it. Uh, giving a methodical step-by-step -step, I think is useful, especially if you find um, that you're, you're blocked or you have some kind of like a stage fright about the meditation practice and the state that you're looking for doesn't come to you. Uh, then instead of striving for a particular experience in meditation that's not happening naturally, you would drop back and try to create the conditions that would support the arising of that state. So, for example, if you find that uh, repeatedly each time you go to the meditation cushion you feel very drowsy and you can't stay awake, you might think it's because there's too much stress and not enough rest in your life. And if you simplify your life and reduce the amount of uh, responsibilities that you have and get a bit more sleep, then you, that's creating a, a condition uh, to be awake during meditation. It sounds simple, but it's it, uh, uh, everything in Buddhism, it's all a step-by-step -step process. He never uh, pointed to the summit of Mount Meru and said, there's enlightenment, just go over there. And here we are down in this swamp trying to um, bail out the swamp and wrestle with alligators and say, how are we ever going to get to the top of that mountain? Instead, uh, the Buddha gives a path. He always gives step by step many different ladders uh, that can be uh, followed in order to uh, make progress. And so 
then even if we still don't see how we're going to get to the summit of the mountain, we can feel happy to know that we're on the path and that we're going in the right direction. I'd like to speak about uh, Dukkha, which is the second mark of the uh, three marks of existence. The traditional teaching that's uh, given in the Anatalakana Sutta, uh, the Buddha points to form, this body, and uh, he says, uh, O monks, is this form permanent or impermanent? And they say, impermanent, venerable sir. Uh, is that which is impermanent uh, happy or unhappy? Uh, suffering or um, uh, non-happiness? And they say, suffering, venerable sir. <laughs> and then... Uh, he says, is that which is impermanent in suffering worthy to be thought of as this is myself, this I am? Um, and now, now that, uh, and they say, um, no, Venerable Sir, it's not worthy to be called this is myself. Um, so, so that sutta is designed, it's one of the um, uh, sequences of argument or sequences of uh, conceptual thinking that leads one to uh, challenge the, uh, the self idea. But to me, that's not the sutta that helped me the most to get a grip on suffering. Uh, what happens when we suffer in life or in meditation? Uh, the first thing is uh, we don't like it, so we want to get rid of our suffering. Uh, we are running away from suffering, but the more we run, the more we might not be uh, solving our problem. Instead, we might be actually perpetuating our problems by trying to uh, run away from whatever is painful in our life or what we experience as being unsatisfactory in a meditation practice or a particular state of meditation. Uh, the teaching uh, that I find uh, the most uh, inspiring about Dukkha is something that's uh, part of a very famous sutta. You might already have, have uh, uh, studied this one or read this one. It's in the uh, Greater Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. That's the version of uh, Satipatthana, which is found in the long discourses of the Buddha. Or if you own the, um, if you own a copy of the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, there's a different sutta called uh, the Exposition on Truth, or Satcha Vibhanga, which is just focused on the Four Noble Truths. And that has exactly the same teaching I'm going to give you. So in the great in the longer Satipatthana Sutta, into the section on Dhammas, the fourth part of that, which is, and then within that, the section on the Four Noble Truths, it gives this uh, long section. And uh, I read it many times without realizing the impact of it. 
uh, until finally uh, we were um, uh, printing a copy of it to be used in chanting. And uh, all the places where the text give uh, ellipses, saying um, uh, they give a basic idea and then you do the, apply the same idea in several different areas. Um, and uh, the ellipses make the mind sort of like coast over the surface of what's being taught. And instead we filled in the blanks so that you were repeating the same song over about um, 12 times in the course of this one section about suffering. And by repeating it uh, was where I finally was able to uh, let this teaching strike the heart. So listen to this. The I, O monks, is dear and delightful in this world. Whenever craving arises in connection with the I, then suffering arises and settles down right there on the I. Visible objects are dear and delightful in the world. Whenever craving arises based on visible objects, right there suffering arises and right there suffering settles down. Feeling Uh, I consciousness, I consciousness, that's the mental faculty that's present and available for seeing things. I consciousness is dear and delightful in the world. Whenever craving arises based on I consciousness, then suffering arises right there, and there it settles down. A feeling. is dear and delightful in this world. Whenever craving arises based on feeling, then suffering arises right there in feeling, and that's where it settles down. Uh, Whenever uh, perception arises, wherever Vitaka, that's a applied thought, that's initial thought, arises. Whenever a sustained thought arises, whenever proliferation of thought arises, if craving arises there, that's where suffering arises, and that's where suffering settles down. So he goes through this long sequence, and he has many uh, different um, subtle words describing different aspects of the thinking process, of the mental process, and saying each part of the whole process is dear and delightful, and can also be a place where the mind gets stuck, where craving arises, and where suffering gets stuck into our experience.
Then uh, that's the section about the arising of dukkha. Then the following uh, section is about the cessation of dukkha. And the question is, how does dukkha, how does uh, suffering come to cease? And he said, the I, O monks, is dear and delightful in this world. If craving doesn't arise, then the cessation of suffering happens right there at the eye. The visible object is dear and delightful in this world. If craving does not arise right there at the visible object, that's where suffering ceases. The eye consciousness, the feeling, the different uh, forms of applied thought, sustained thought, thinking and proliferation of thinking, all the range of the mental process that is arising related to a visible object at each step of the way. If we can have the experience without the craving, uh, then suffering doesn't arise and we experience right there the non-arising or the cessation or the non-existence of suffering in our life. So, in other words, what this is telling us is that Nibbana is not something over the mountain. It's not over the rainbow. It's not far away. Nibbana is right exactly the same place where we suffer, the same, exactly the same phenomenon where we are suffering is exactly the same place where we stop suffering. So we don't have to go anywhere to uh, uh, see or to experience the end of suffering, but we do have to be able to stay uh, within our experience to understand how suffering arises before we'll be able to understand how it doesn't arise or how it ceases. So we have to be, in a certain kind of way, available to notice how suffering is arising for us from all of the different uh, points along the spectrum of our physical, emotional, mental, psychological process where craving is arising, where there comes to be a sticking point that the mind becomes obsessed, identified, or are um, uh, latched on um, to something that's wanted or where the mind becomes um, um, uh, uh, reactive in trying to uh, uh, destroy or get rid of or avoid uh, something that seems to be uh, some type of existential threat. There was a question about um, uh, coping with fear. Uh, and I have to say that uh, for me, one of the most uh, useful and beneficial practices I ever had uh, for fear was uh, doing uh, some uh, long uh, wilderness, outside wilderness hiking experiences when I was younger and having uh, the opportunities to encounter things that were frightening at the physical level uh, for some reason to really uh, contact and, and know the elementary emotions, 
such as fear, when it's based on something physical, is so much more clear, uh, uh, vital, vivid, and in a certain way easy to deal with. And uh, uh, when um, uh, fear, for example, or any other kind of emotional state is a social anxiety, it becomes very uh, convoluted and sort of obfuscated um, that uh, it's much more difficult to uh, see or admit uh, what it is that we're afraid of or that we're afraid or fearful. And it may be that a person might be experiencing uh, some kind of like a chronic anxiety. So there's something happening and triggering them and they don't really even know what it is. And so they can't, then they become like helpless to uh, deal with the thing that's evoking the anxiety because they don't know quite where it's coming from. Uh, uh, there was a case, um, a group of nurses in the 1940s was working in the radiology lab and they were getting uh, sick from radiation sickness because it was not known about the safe process. So they were all getting sick, but the, nobody could figure out where the sickness, they couldn't, didn't know where it was coming from. You know, so that's uh, very difficult. But if you are outside in the wilderness and you see a giant rattlesnake in it, and the snake, you know, uh, rattles at you and gives you the evil eye, and you, you jump, and then uh, for the next um, uh, 24 hours you may notice that your um, a snake um, activation system has been triggered and then every stick and every vine that you see along the forest is, is causing you to uh, startle and jump because, because um, a physical um, a thing has been aroused in you. Then um, that becomes a kind of a touchstone to say, oh, okay, now I know what, what uh, fear is at this level. Uh, so the thing to... Uh, uh, that's really, I think, is, is very useful for uh, difficult emotions like fear, anger, and so forth, are to have a very uh, forgiving attitude and realize that nature gave us this equipment to help us to live. If you say that, think of evolution or nature or something as being like a, a good mom who wants you to have the equipment that you need to be able to survive and wants to uh, protect you from harm and enable you to uh, take care of yourself. And so uh, she gives you fear and she gives you anger so that you'll have the tools you need to cope with uh, difficulties in life. It's just that uh, the fear and the anger are not always um, properly placed and uh, may be uh, misdirected, uh, may become uh, compulsive and uh, uh, really need to be uh, refined by the addition of wisdom um, in order to uh, uh, bring you to uh, be truly safe and to have a truly happy life. But if you are, let's say, uh, whether it's meditating on the cushion or being mindfully going through your daily life, if uh, uh, fear or anger arise, you could see at some particular level 
actually this fear is dear and delightful in this world because this fear is here for my safety, to protect my life. Actually, this anger at a certain level is dear and delightful in this world because this anger is giving me the strength, the energy, and the determination to take care of business and do something, uh, set a boundary or uh, overturn an injustice or do, do something that is uh, um, uh, for my uh, welfare or possibly for the, uh, the welfare of those around me whom I care about, who I feel that I should be uh, trying to also protect them. Um, and when we can uh, take these so-called afflictive emotions and view them with the same tenderness and love and respect that we give to the so-called beneficial emotions like love and compassion and so forth and realize that you know this is it's just this is the equipment i have it's what i got to be a human uh, it's such a lucky thing to be a human uh, because of the what a human is uh, capable of and then uh, see if it's possible to have that underlying craving not ar- come not to arise in connection with the process that we're in the middle of. So even if we're in the middle of a, an intense emotional or an intense social situation or an intense physical situation, even while we're doing uh, the things that we need to do, we can just uh, take the information say our body, our subconscious, our emotions or whatever are giving us some information about uh, our situation and say, okay, well, thank you for sharing. I know that now. Um, that snake is dangerous for me. I'd better stay away from it. And then um, uh, do what's necessary to do, but without the grasping. So then... Uh, another question was about um, uh, dealing with uh, an intense uh, uh, sorrow and grief situation, uh, such as uh, what I had, uh, um, uh, for example, when my, my younger, younger brother passed away. And uh, all of the stages of grief and loss, then, this is part of nature. There's a certain kind of way that as long as we're running away from it, we never get away from it. But if we have a situation that we're able to stand our ground and receive the sorrow or receive the pain without moving, something can break in the mind about craving that the mind gives up on this uh, foolish quest to have a perfect life without suffering. You know, when, uh, when, my, uh, uh, when my brother died, it was like, 
the universe was very unfair. Why is this happening to me? Um, the uh, uh, medicine is inadequate. Doctors make mistakes. The government should have funded the medical research to prevent this from happening. So many things, you know, should, should woulda, coulda, should have, like as if this particular loss that happened to me was um, a mistake, something that was not supposed to happen. But it wasn't something that was not supposed to happen. It was something that did happen. And then when we are able to receive it and say, okay, this is it. It's the reality. Life contains this. Then this... this kind of uh, perfectionism that thinks that we can build uh, some kind of a perfect state and that's where our happiness is going to be is because we're going to manage to have a situation where our social environment, our physical environment, our career, our body, and the weather are all going to be like nice (laughs) at the same time and then we can be happy. Or in a meditation situation, we can have a situation where the temperature is just right, um, the, nobody's breathing loudly around us, uh, the teaching is just the kind of teaching that's useful to us and not too boring, and, and the um, cushion is comfortable and the body is comfortable, and, and then we're going to be able to have a good meditation. <laughs> but how often does that happen? You know, so so it, when we when we give up on seeking to create this, this sort of like this superficial perfection as a condition for our happiness, then we reach a state of, uh, you could say, uh, the perfection of patience or the per- perfection of equanimity where actually whatever it happens to be in the present moment, that's the perfection. So even if the present moment has everything's falling apart, it's a catastrophe, um, and I'm not comfortable, and my body is uncomfortable, and I have spent the whole morning uh, uh, furiously trying to solve some kind of, you know, intense uh, problem, maybe some social problem or some work problem, and then the mind is, you know, spinning around with with the with all those mental process, and, and it's even just a difficult to uh, connect with three breaths in a, in a row because there's so, too many unsolved. Uh, problems uh, floating around in the consciousness, this is well, the perfect time for meditation. See, so then, uh, um, the actually the contemplation of dukkha can be by itself a really powerful gateway to a joyful life. I'm going to pause here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.